See, our salvation, it rests upon a great reversal, a reversal in which heaven's Son comes down and takes our place, that we who deserve nothing, who merit nothing, might join him in his place. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And what a great thing for us to think about this Christmas season, that great exchange that happened when Jesus left heaven, was born as a baby, lived among us, ultimately so that we could receive eternal life from him and so that he would take the punishment, the judgment that should be ours. Christmas has at its heart this upside down and backwards kind of a story where God himself in the person of his son ends up in humble circumstances, even though heaven is his home, and then lives a life of simplicity, a life of marginalization, even though the universe belongs to him. And then he ends up on an instrument of torture, dying a criminal's death, even though he did no wrong. And at every point, we see Jesus assuming the place that is, it is rightly ours, that we might join him in a place eternally to which we have no right. It's a, it's a wonderful story, a great reversal. And Mary captures something of that right at the beginning in her wonderful song, and we're going to start thinking about that together today. So grab a Bible if you have one nearby, open it to the book of Luke, we're in chapter 1, verses 46 to 56, as we begin a message called, The God Who Remembers. Here is Jonathan. Well, perhaps more than any other season or celebration, Christmas is known for inspiring poetry and song. Some of it, of course, is little more than background noise. I heard one of the FM radio stations announce this week that they were doing 100% Christmas tunes from that point on until the 25th, and I thought to myself, those poor radio hosts having to listen to Christmas pop on repeat for two weeks straight. I mean, can you imagine it? Plenty of Christmas music is noise and little more, but at the same time, much of the church's treasury of Christmas music, it's rich and it's beautiful, it's reverent and it's worshipful, but no Christmas composition, not even the very best that the church has produced, has ever come close to the song that Mary wrote in praise to the God of Christmas. As Mary considers the miracle that has been announced to her, she naturally and she instinctively breaks out in verse, praising the Lord for what He has done and what He is doing. She composes a, a poem, a song, most commonly known as the Magnificat, which is one of the great songs of praise of the Christian Scriptures. When we met Mary a few verses earlier, she had just been introduced to God's plan of salvation, this plan that impacts her own life so profoundly, the plan to send God's Son into the world as her own baby, as the child of her womb. She's had to work through some shock and some confusion, of course. She's had to process the risk of personal loss, in even disgrace that might come through this plan. But her response was extraordinary. You'll remember what she said to the angel Gabriel, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
since receiving this life-changing news, Mary has gone away from home, away from Nazareth, presumably to continue to process what she's heard, to consider how she might speak of this pregnancy, to think about how she might answer the questions that are going to come her way. She's gone to the Judean hills, to the home of her relative, Elizabeth wife of the priest, Zechariah, who herself is expecting a very special baby in very special circumstances. Despite her advanced age, despite her inability to conceive, Elizabeth is expecting a child, and her husband, Zechariah, has been told by an angel that this child will play a vital role in the fulfillment of God's salvation plan. Luke recorded some of that detail for us back earlier in in chapter 1. Elizabeth's child, John, he would have a special role of preparing the people for the arrival of the Lord, of announcing the coming of the Lord. And, And Mary's child, well, we know already from what we've read, he is none other than the Lord Himself. He is the Lord Himself who has come to earth to save John's role, it will be to go ahead of Jesus and announce His coming to prepare His people, and then Jesus, well, He arrives. So there's this special bond between these two mothers and these two babies, and Mary goes straight to Elizabeth with her news. Elizabeth, for her part, she knows and she understands the situation. She's been given insight. Perhaps she's the only person in the world who understands Mary's situation. And so she greets Mary not with words of perplexity, not with words of scorn, but with words of honor. Verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. It's clear that by now Mary has begun to to process things, and it's clear that she realizes that what Elizabeth says is true. She is blessed among women. She is privileged. The Lord has shown her great kindness, and having begun to process this news, having understood that God was sending His long-awaited Messiah into the world, having begun to understand her own very special role in this process, Mary now breaks out into poetry, into song. And her song, well, it is magnificent. It's beautiful in form, of course, but it's more than that, very profound in what it says. As Mary sings praises to this God of salvation, this God of Christmas, she focuses in on two central truths about this gracious God that are particularly precious to her. Two truths that are central to the Christmas story. Two truths that each one of us this morning needs to hear, needs to believe, and needs to take to heart. The first truth that Mary celebrates in her song is this. She celebrates the fact that the God of Christmas is the God of stunning reversals. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Lord Who Remembers. It's part of our series, Glory in the Highest, and we're going to get back to this message from Luke 1 in just a moment, so I hope you'll stay with us. Well, we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching each day on the station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that Jonathan has picked. It's called The Four Emotions of Christmas, and it's our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. It's a great book dealing with the emotions that we often find 
when we feel like Christmas hasn't lived up to what we thought it would be. We find ourselves feeling disappointed. Is there anything that could bring us hope? We'd love to send you a copy of this book. Again, it's our way of saying thank you for your financial support. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or again, EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here's Jonathan. The God of Christmas is the God of stunning reversals. We're into that season of Christmas plays and musicals and presentations, as we all know. We had an assembly, a special assembly at our kids' school the other day, and we went, of course, to show our support and to see it. Toward the end of the occasion after the thing was, was finished, I noticed just out of the corner of my eye that the school principal's wardrobe seemed to be a little bit out of kilter. She's normally a very sort of well-presented person. She was wearing this sweater, a kind of zip-up hoodie. I think it was a school one, maybe with a school logo on it. But the back of it, the hoodie bit, was under her chin, and, and there was a zip at, at her back. And I, I leaned over to Gemma, and, and I asked if she had noticed this seems a little bit strange to me, a bit out of character. Gemma replied very kindly by pointing out that all the 300 children and teachers in the room were all wearing their clothes backwards and had been throughout the entire presentation. <laughs> that included our own children who had been wearing their clothes backwards since breakfast. They were doing that because it was in fact backwards day at school and it seemed I was the only one in the room who hadn't noticed. Now, that may say something quite concerning about my own powers of observation, but we'll leave that aside for just a moment. I mention that not specifically for the purpose of embarrassing myself, but simply because there is something about Christmas, something about the Christmas story. There is an element to it that is upside down and backwards. You see, Christmas is a story of great reversals. It is a story of things being surprisingly, even shockingly, not the way they should be. That reality runs right through the whole drama that Luke records. It goes right back to Elizabeth with the news that she would have a baby. Her response is to say, chapter 1, back in verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and he's taken away my disgrace. To be barren in that day and age, to be unable to conceive, it was a very hard thing culturally. Added to the natural emotional pain of that, which is there in any age, which is true in any age, there was this strong social stigma. But now in sending that special baby to Elizabeth in her old age, God had chosen to turn her disgrace upside down. He had chosen to bring privilege and honor and glory even, where once there was emptiness and sadness and even shame. It's upside down. It, it's backwards. It's a glorious reversal in Elizabeth's life. Well, if that was the case for Elizabeth, it is even more so for Mary. Here is this small town girl of little account, unmarried, in an age where women had little social standing apart from their husbands, unknown to the world, without position, without power. And yet, the Lord has chosen her. He has chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah, of the Savior King, even of the Son of God. 
And now Mary sees Elizabeth. And you have to remember here, although Elizabeth has a sense of shame about her childlessness, she was still in a place of some prominence in her society. Her husband was a, a priest, and she herself was of the priestly clan. They were very respectable people. They had position. They had influence. Just notice with me what Luke says about them, chapter 1 and verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. So Elizabeth is a highly respectable person, a person of some status, some position. But when Mary comes to her house, Elizabeth now feels honored. Honored because she knows the honor that the Lord has bestowed on Mary. Verse 42, blessed are you, Mary. Verse 43, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You see, suddenly Mary has become an honored person. Suddenly, when the priest's wife meets with the young relative, the young nobody from nowhere, the priest's wife is honored to have her in her home. And Mary is very attuned to all this. She's sensitive to it. She sees the strangeness of it. She doesn't hear the angel's words to her and think, oh, yes, I would have chosen me too. That makes sense. Of course the Messiah should come to me. Of course the Son of God should be born to me. No, a king should be born in a palace. The Messiah should be born to a royal mother. But no, God has chosen another way. We're going slowly through the Christmas story at home and pausing on some of the small details. And this is the thing that keeps hitting us, the thing that we keep noticing together. When you think of the uh, donkey ride to Bethlehem, you think of the no room at the inn and the stable and the manger and, and all the rest of it. When you think about all that, I mean, what a thing it is for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come into this world in such a fashion and in such a way. That's the surprise. That's the shocking thing of Christmas. It is upside down. It is backwards. It is not what you would expect. But you see, God has chosen this other way, this surprising path, and He has remembered Mary. He's looked down upon her, and He's been mindful of her, verse 48, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Mary sees that the Lord is achieving this great reversal in her life, but she sees this as something which is not confined to her personally. No, in sending the Savior into the world, in sending the Messiah, He is intentionally and systematically turning things upside down and back to front. Verse 50. We're going now beyond Mary's own story to the implications of the world. Verse 50, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He's sent the rich away empty. See, Mary has seen that what God has done for her and is doing for her is actually entirely consistent with His character. This is the way in which the God of the Bible works. We live in a world where might is right, where money talks, where hard work should pay off, where connections count, where smarts get you ahead, with those with the sharpest elbows and the most grit get to where they want to get in the end. 
But you see, although that's the way our world works, it's not the way in which God works in salvation. No, in His grace and in His mercy, God marches to the beat of an entirely different drum. He delights not to reward those who push their way ahead, but to bestow honor and to bestow blessing on those who are humble before Him. As Mary reflects on her experience, she sees that God actually has a very rich history of doing this very thing. It's part of a pattern. He's been pleased over time to bring down proud rulers like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and plenty of proud kings of Israel too. He has seen fit to withhold spiritual blessing from the wealthy and from the proud. He has been pleased to scatter the proud, to scatter the grasping, like those ambitious people at Babel in Genesis 11, you remember, who wanted to build a tower to heaven itself, scattered, confused, sent on their way. And at the very same time, He has been pleased to exalt those who are humble before Him, but whom the world dishonors. It's often observed that Mary's song here recalls pretty strongly another song, another prayer by another mother, the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, where the Lord gave her a son, overcoming her inability to have children, lifting her shame, lifting her sorrow after she cried out to Him in absolute humility, crying out to Him for His help and for His mercy. This is just what the Lord does. This is who He is. And Mary sees it. Mary recognizes it. And Mary praises God for it. And the truth that she's seeing here and articulating here, well, it will be more central to the story of her child than she even knows. She's speaking of things that she only partially understands. She's speaking of things that she only partially understands because the child who would come as Savior King well, He would bring His salvation through a process of very great reversal, of thoroughly stunning reversal. Mary doesn't see the full reality yet. She doesn't know how the story ends, but the Son who is coming into the world, well, as He does so, He sets aside the splendor of heaven itself. He leaves the glory of His eternal home where angels bow before Him, and He enters the limitations of the human condition. Yes, He would come to a humble home and live a simple life, but He would go down further than that. He would accept mocking and rejection and abuse and shame. And He would go down even further still. He would descend to death itself, dying a shameful criminal's death, dying in my place and dying in your place. Jesus would plumb the very depths of the human experience so that one day we who trust Him might rise to join Him in the glory of heaven itself. We might join Him as forgiven sinners, as a redeemed people. You see, our salvation, it rests upon a great reversal, a reversal in which heaven's Son comes down and takes our place, that we who deserve nothing, who merit nothing, might join Him in His place from which He came. I heard it said recently that the most profound verse that summarizes best the very heart of Christmas is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where the Apostle Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, 
yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The royal son of heaven became poor in the incarnation, in his suffering, and in his death, so that ultimately you and I might be made rich through his poverty, that we might share an eternity, a glorious eternity with him. He came down that we might go up. Now, that's the reversal at the heart of the gospel. That's the great reversal at the heart of Christmas. But the thing to notice and the thing to see is that the recipients of God's kindness, the beneficiaries of His mercy, are those who recognize their need, who are humble before Him, who fear Him aright. God chose to go marry and not to some princess in a palace. And Mary sees something in that choice. She sees that God shows His mercy to those who do not presume upon His mercy. He delights to show His kindness to those who don't imagine that they deserve His kindness. He fills the hungry, verse 53, and not the full. He helps the humble and not those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's gracious and merciful to those who fear Him, but He does not show His mercy to those who have no regard for Him. Last Sunday, we found that Mary has something very special and very profound to teach us by her example. And I think that the same is true today in this passage. Mary models for us the kind of person whom God helps and God saves, the kind of person God lifts up and exalts, the person who presumes nothing upon Him, who has no sense of deserving anything from Him the gift of Christmas, the royal son who comes to save, who comes not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gift of this son is a gift for the humble and not for the proud. It is a gift for the God-fearing. It is a gift for those who come hungry and empty, longing to be filled. And knowing that, remembering that, hearing that from the lips of Mary, I want to ask this morning, what is the state of your heart before the Lord? And what is the state of mine? Are you before Him here today as someone empty, needing to be filled? Someone low, needing to be raised up? Someone broken, needing to be made whole? Or do you come today as someone who's got it together? Someone with something to offer the Lord? Someone you imagine God would be pleased to welcome, pleased to notice, pleased to use? That's a searching question for us to consider. It's a bit of an uncomfortable question to consider. But I, I do think we must consider it together this morning in light of what we read here. I think the text forces us to reckon with it. I think Mary, in her humility, compels us to address it. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called The Lord Who Remembers. If you missed any part of the broadcast, you can always come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We do depend on your generosity to keep this teaching on the station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. 
And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? Well, I think our great hope is that the book will bring encouragement at Christmas time, both for those who know Christ and those who don't. I think Christmas is often a time of very, very mixed emotions. We know it's meant to be the most wonderful time of the year. We know it's meant to be magical, and sometimes it is, and sometimes, well, it isn't. And in this little book, Bob Lapine takes us through the emotions of Christmas and actually traces those back to the first Christmas and draws us to find our joy in Christmas, not in our circumstances or our situation, which may be great or may not be great, but to find our joy and hope at Christmas in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to be our Savior. And I think that'll be an encouragement. I think that'll be a help to all of us. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book. Again, it's called The Four Emotions of Christmas. It's our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. You can give a gift online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or 833-99-TRUTH. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.